The Lord has told us what is good. The Lord has told us what he requires of us. Do you see? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Do you see justice? A world where all are equal, a backwards kingdom where the last are first, and the heavy hand has been lifted off the oppressed? Do you see mercy? Are the bellies of the hungry fed? Are the heads of the homeless dry? Have you given clothes to those in need? Do you see humility? For when it is found, there your light shall break and appear like the early morning sun. Your righteousness will go before you, and you will rest in God's glory. This Christmas season, do you see? Good morning. It is good to see you. Good to have you here. Having survived Snowpocalypse 2016, it's good to have you here. Those of you in Skagit, glad you're with us, and Pastor uh, Brian, as well as T and the rest of the gang down there. And I just want to say to the church in Boca Raton, to Trinity Church God, thanks for the shout out. It's good to, to have you with us uh, every week. And those of you watching streaming online, we're glad that you've joined us as well. I just want to, before I get into my sermon, mention uh, for some who are not able to be a part of it, this last Wednesday night we had an absolutely amazing time. I, I mentioned this last week that one of my favorite events of the entire year is Cornwall at the Mall, and it was a great time of, of people being there together and, and the joy of generosity. There are over 900 shoppers from, from Cornwall, 80 volunteers, about 1,000 of us descended upon Bell's Fair Mall, and the, the mountain of toys that were donated to the uh, community toy store was just just mind-boggling and I understand that the toy store went really well yesterday with over 360 families served more than 12 or 1300 children will have toys on Christmas morning because of your generosity and I just want to tell you how blessed how uh, inspired how humbled I am how grateful I am to be a part of such a generous giving community as Cornwall Church and I just want to say thank you and I think you did a great job with that <clears throat> And the other bonus is, yet again, I got to ride a girl's bike through the mall and not get kicked out this year. So, we'll try again next year. Hey, um, as we're in this series, Do You See, and we talked about that last week, where does that come from? Not only the song, but this whole idea of, of what we're studying in Micah. I was thinking about this title, Do You See, and it reminded me of a story that I read years ago, a story that Bruce Larson put in one of his books uh, called God, What God Wants to Know. And it's a true story that, that actually Bruce's daughter told to him. It was about her sister-in-law. And her sister-in-law is a, is a conservationist and actively promotes the, uh, the preservation of the natural environment and wildlife. And while she and her husband and their two young sons were driving up the east coast of Florida on a vacation, they noticed a sign advertising a naturist camp just ahead. Assuming it was the same as a naturalist camp, they decided to visit the camp in hopes of meeting new friends who shared a common passion. They drove in, parked their car, and wasted no time heading toward the beach. However, it did not take but a few moments to realize that this was actually a nudist camp. The first group of people they came across were five adults, all stark naked, as they were riding their bikes along the path to the beach. Their oldest son stopped and stared in amazement. Look, Mom and Dad, he said, pointing. 
they're not wearing safety helmets. And I was thinking about that story because while what he said is true and important, he missed the profoundly significant detail that they weren't wearing anything at all. And I think at Christmas season, this is when we are most apt to focus on things that are beautiful, that are wonderful, that are important, and sometimes miss the most profoundly significant things that's right there in plain sight. And we ask, do you see? Do you see what's important? Do you see what really matters? 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words that Jesus would later quote. Actually, the Apostle Paul would as well. And Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. Don't you see? It's right there. You, you, you're even looking at it, but you miss it. Do you see? And then later, in verse 16, Jesus would say, but, but blessed are your eyes because they see. You do see. And your ears because they hear. You see what I see. You hear what I hear. Some of you remember in the early 70s, 1972, Johnny Nash came out with his hit song, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. You know, okay, we won't sing it. But he gets to the refrain, and he says, it's going to be a bright, 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 sunshiny day. And as we've been looking at Mike, and as we know about the prophets, they could see clearly. All obstacles were gone. They could see what God saw. They could, they could see the reality. But the refrain for them as they spoke what they saw was not that it was going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day. Quite the opposite. Because what they saw was that there were clouds looming on the horizon, and there was a massive storm that was brewing. Unless something changed, things were going to get ugly, not bright and sunny. And the, the, the role of the prophet was to say, listen, you drifted off track. You've gone off course. Let's get back on. Let's recalibrate. And God would say through the prophets, you don't have to have this, this coming punishment, this discipline, this destruction. You can get it back on track and, and avoid that. And so Micah would come and he would say these words. Now, Micah is who we've been looking at. It's where we're focusing for these three weeks. And Micah is a, referred to as a minor prophet, which is really unfortunate. Because there's nothing in the Bible that calls him a minor prophet. That's a, that's a man-made term. And you, when you hear that he's a minor prophet, it kind of sounds like he's in the, in the farm league. You know, he's kind of working his way up. And if he does it well, you know, somewhere down the road, if he just kind of pays his, his you know, dues and, and bides his time, he'll be like Isaiah. That's not the case. The only thing that differentiates a major prophet from a minor prophet in the Bible, and this is man-made, not God, uh, but, is the number of chapters in their book. It's a smaller book. That's, that's the only thing. The message isn't lesser. This isn't like oh, optional stuff. In fact, while Micah is a minor prophet, his message is a major message. I was reading one biblical scholar in his commentary. He said that he believed that there were these four pillar uh, verses of the Old Testament that were kind of like foundational, like the mountain peak, these four verses. And the one that we've been looking at, he listed as one of these four verses. The others were Deuteronomy 6, the the Shema for the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said that is a pillar verse of the entire Old Testament. Another one, he would say, is Amos chapter 5. Let justice roll like a river, righteousness like an unfailing stream. Another one was Jonah chapter 4, when it talks about how God is gracious and compassionate, 
slow to anger, abounding in love, relenting from sending calamity. One of these pillar statements of the Old Testament. And the fourth one was this one that we've been looking at out of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Now, as we saw last week, in the book of Micah, this prophet comes in a very difficult time of Israel's history. They've strayed way off track, and he's trying to get them back on. He, he gives them some warnings. He talks about God's promises. And then he calls court into session in Micah chapter 6. Then he calls some witnesses. Then he builds the case against God's people. They give a rebuttal. And then this verse that we've been looking at. And in this verse, there's a statement, a question, and then a threefold answer to the question. All right, Micah 6, 8. He has showed you, he has showed you, O man, what is good. That's the statement. Question, what does the Lord require? Not just kind of hope for. What does he require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And in this verse, you see the summation of what God wants for us in our lives. Encapsulated in this verse, think about this. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said the first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, he would say, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he would go on to say, all the law and the prophets hang on these two. These are the two things that you must do. And they're found in this verse. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to walk humbly with your God. To love your neighbor as yourself is to act justly and to love mercy. And so last week we began looking at this, and we we recognized that we just barely scratched the surface of this issue, this theme throughout Scripture of justice. What does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to act justly? What does it mean? And we find that Micah says, I want you to personally embrace being for the cause of the needy, of the poor, of the oppressed, and that God, his, his character is reflected in justice. And this justice is, is treating everybody equitably. And the Bible would talk about it with everybody, but specifically the widows, the orphans, the aliens, and, and, and the poor. Those who don't have a voice, that you would speak up for them. Those that are vulnerable, that you would stand up with them. That you would act on their behalf. And so Micah comes along and he says, this is what God requires. That you would act justly. That you would do justice. But it's not just that. And then we, we talked about what what um, Gary Haugen, founder of International Justice Mission, what he said that God has a plan for this whole thing, that, that we are the answer to, to the injustice and the ills of this world. Another way it can be stated is that God's plan for justice is just us. Like he says, yes, it's a problem. And so I've called you to make a difference. I've called you to take on injustice. I've called you to speak up for the oppressed. I've called you to work with poverty. I've called you to be the answer. It's just us. And while at at one time we can get so overwhelmed because the injustices and the ills of our society and our world are so overwhelming that we can feel like, what am I going to do? I can't make a difference. And where we landed last week is, don't let what you can't do keep you from doing what you can do and do something in everyday life. Medium things, big things, whatever God would call us to. And one of the ones that I said was just a practical, simple step in this is this gift of grub that we're doing, the 5-5 five, five challenge. That every, and some of you started doing that today, and over between now and Christmas Eve, we're going to be collecting this and just giving this food to those who are in great need. It's one of the steps of justice that all of us can do. And I'm challenging every single one of us, minimum. Every man, woman, child, student, every one of us, a minimum of five pounds each, to be able to help those who are hungry. So we look at this verse, and, and we started with that. And, and again, 
can't do, as I said, can't do justice to the theme of justice in one week or even one series. But we go on to act justly and to love mercy. And while these are separate, obviously with three weeks we're kind of talking about the three things here. While they're separate, they're also very closely connected. And while they have their own independent sides to them, they, they, they can't be separated out in this context. An Old Testament uh, scholar who wrote a, a commentary on Micah, his name is um, Bruce uh, Waltke, he said that, that while they are connected, the emphasis of each of these is different. He said justice is action, mercy is attitude. I mean, you just look at the verbs, do Love, do justly, do justice, love mercy. One are the things that we do, and one of them is the motive behind it, the heart behind it, the driving force behind it. It's the attitude behind it. And we often separate them because isn't it true that you can feel very merciful for someone or something or some condition and not do anything about it? Isn't it true that it can grip you even at a visceral level, that you can be broken over some of the atrocities or some of the hardships in this world or in your neighborhood and not do anything about it? You can love mercy and never do anything about it. And the, the converse is true, that you can do the right things. You can do acts of justice coming from a very wrong motive. I mean, think about if you've ever volunteered or done some pro bono work, but your attitude was such that you were a little begrudging of the whole thing. I mean, you could do, you're doing great things, you're helping people in need, but inside you're kind of grumbling about it, and I wish I didn't have to do this, and why do I have to be inconvenienced? You might even go to say things like, boy, if they weren't so irresponsible, they wouldn't have this need, or if they would just kind of take care of themselves. And they, you might be doing the right thing, but your attitude is awful. Or, or how about, like, as a response to a punishment? Here's a case. Your teenage child did something, doesn't matter, and so you give them an option, okay? There's a consequence. You're going to lose your phone for two weeks or you're going to serve at the, home, uh, the soup, soup kitchen. I'll tell you right now what your child is going to do. It's no mystery, and it's not because they just, like, care for the poor. It's like, I want my phone. You look at this kid, and you're like, wow, look at what, what he or she's doing. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's not so pure like you think. Or maybe... Maybe a judge says, okay, you got 30 days in the slammer or community service. Suddenly you really care about the community. <laughs> Do you really think that the sheriff work team really is so environmentally conscious that they want to go out and pick stuff up out of the ditch? No. They're doing good stuff, but the motive isn't out of this love for mercy. All right? How about, how about when it's, when it's um, guilt? I mean, someone just lays, some pastor Lay some guilt trip on you, or a parent, it doesn't matter. And I'll tell you this, guilt is very effective for the short term. Not in the long haul. It's manipulative, but it is effective. Some of you know that. Don't, don't elbow your spouse right now. Don't, elbow, don't look at your parents. Don't look at me. I, I, we know. And maybe it's out of guilt. No, you're doing this and you don't want to, but I just feel so guilty. Or maybe it's to assuage your own guilt because you feel guilty because you've been blessed so much in life. And it's not that you care for them. It's like you kind of feel bad and this will make you feel better about yourself. Or how about pride? If I do this and actually if I'm seen doing this, then wow, people will think, <laughs> think I'm an all right guy. Or, or maybe, you know what, if I do this, I, I kind of grow in my own self-righteousness. I am an all right guy. Or, 
or maybe it's this pride that says, you know, I'm, I'm better than these people and I'm helping them. So you can do justice without having the right heart and the right attitude. And God says, I don't see them as separate. I require both. I require that you would do justice, that you would do these things, but it would come from this heart, from this love, from this attitude that you love mercy. So, so what is this, I mean, mercy, when we're talking about mercy, what is mercy? The Hebrew word, this will be fun for you, the Hebrew word is one of those clearing your throat kind of words. It's chesed. Try that. Chesed. Chesed is, it, it means unconditional grace and compassion. That's what chesed is. So when, like, there's a man named Bartimaeus, he's blind. He hears that Jesus is coming by, and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy, chesed, have mercy on me. Show me grace, show me compassion. Have mercy on me. So when Micah comes along, he says, listen, this is what God requires of you. Not just once for you. He requires this of you, that you would love this unconditional grace and compassion. And as we saw the condition of Israel, and especially the leaders who had become so corrupt, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, we looked at that last week. He looks at them and he says, you ought to be leading the way. You ought to be some of the most merciful people in showing how to have this life of justice and mercy. And in, in very graphic and horrific terms, Micah refers to these leaders about being anything but merciful. In fact, they're the antithesis of mercy. In Micah chapter 3, he said, I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, you prophets, you priests, you kings, those of you administrators, all of you in charge. Should you not know justice? You, you ought to know. Your, this is your role. And then he just lays it out there. You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. You think Mike is a little over the top there? He's saying, you guys, best case scenario, you're a bunch of butchers. Worst case, you're a bunch of beasts that are devouring the people you're supposed to have mercy on. This is how, how grim the situation was. And it's to these people and their followers who were merciless. And God says, this is what I require of you. That you would love. You would love mercy. Well, let's talk about this God who requires mercy such a thing. Last week, when we were talking about justice, we discovered that justice reflects the character of God, that God is a, a just God, that he cares for the, the fatherless and the, you know, the, the widow and the, and the poor and the outcasts and the, the foreigners. That, that is the very nature of God. So it's no wonder he calls us to follow and like father, like son, like father, like daughter. The truth is, mercy as well is a reflection of the character of God. That our God is a merciful God. If you've been coming to Cornwall consistently for any length of time, somewhere along the way, you've heard me say this. I get really frustrated when people try to differentiate between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Like, I like the New Testament God, but I don't like the Old Testament God. Like, the Old Testament God, he's so cranky and so vengeful and he's so bloodthirsty. And the New Testament God is a softer, kinder, gentler God. Well, let me just state it again. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. The Old Testament God is the New Testament God. Jesus is the Old Testament God. It's all the same. What you find if you'll do a thorough reading of the Old Testament 
is that God, yes, even in the Old Testament, was unbelievably gracious, unthinkably patient. The, the old word, long-suffering, and so incredibly merciful. And here's a little side thought. I don't want to muddy the waters, and I wish I had time to develop this. People say, I love the New Testament God, and they're usually referring to the life of Jesus, the, the Gospels. Keep in mind that the Gospels really cover about three years, and the Old Testament covers 3,000 years. Now let me just tell you this. You could cherry-pick three-year periods out of the Old Testament where you say, God of the Old Testament's amazing, the blessings he pours out. I mean, it's just, even in just the economy of the length of time that's covered. And besides, Jesus said some pretty strong statements as well that, that you just haven't read or you avoid. But what we find is that God, even the God of the Old Testament, was so merciful. Because for Israel, he had said, you will be uh, you'll be my people and I will be your God. And if you walk with me, if you follow my word, if you obey, I will bless you. Life will be amazing for you. And they would. And then they would stray off. And instead of God writing them off, you know what he would do? He would warn them. He would send a judge. He would send a prophet. He would send a message saying, hey, listen, you know, I'm going to eventually discipline you unless Unless you turn things around, you don't have to experience this. It's like when you parents say, I'm going to count to three, although God would sometimes say, I'm going to count to 100 years or something. He was so patient. So to get back on track. And because of their hardness of their heart, because of their stubbornness, they would go their way and God would say, okay, and there would be discipline. For the purpose, not to assuage his anger, for the purpose of bringing them back into a relationship where he could bless them again. It was just a merciful thing. Those of you who are parents... You know that your discipline usually, your discipline usually is done because of love. You care for your child. And God would discipline them, and then they would come back on track, and he would bless them, and things would go good for a while, and then they would stray off, and they would rebel. And again, he would warn them, and he would send a prophet, and he would send a judge, and, and tell them get back on track. And if they wouldn't, there was discipline. And you know what? When they came back, you know what he did? He just folded his arms and said, tough. Should have thought about that before. No. He always welcomed them back saying, thank you, I love you, I want to bless you. This is, to quote an old song, this six-cycle carousel that they're on goes round and round and round and round again and again and again. So the psalmist writes in Psalm 78, as he's just reminding them of this carousel that they're on, he says, yet he, God of the Old Testament, he was merciful, chesed, he was gracious, he was compassionate. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He is a God of mercy. And in one of these seasons when there was discipline, times were difficult because they had strayed so far. Through the prophet Jeremiah, he writes this book, Lamentations, because things are so, so tough. He's just lamenting all the time. Even in that, he says, but your mercies are new every single morning. Even in our season of discipline, God, your mercies are new. There's an obscure little story, we don't have time to go into it, but from David's life. When David, in disobedience, did this thing that seems pretty innocent, he took a census of the people, but God had told him not to. But he did this, and God sent, he sent a prophet. It's a prophet we don't hear about a whole lot. It's the prophet Gad. Gad never wrote a book. I think Gad had a first initial E, because when he showed up, you go, E, Gad. Maybe not. But Gad comes to him, he's a prophet, and he says to David, and this is a very unique situation. 
He says to David, you know, you've sinned against the Lord. You've gone against his commands. There is going to be consequences for this. And then he gives him three options. It's like behind door number one, door number, and he just lays this out. You can choose this or this or this. You decide. And David's response is amazing. Second Samuel says this. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. He was repentant. He was sorrowful. He broke God's law. And he knew that his whole nation was going to suffer because of the decision that he had made. He's in deep distress. Then look at this response. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Why? Because our mercy is not so great. He said, I would much rather take my chances with my merciful God than a jury of my peers. Because even in discipline, I know that God disciplines with grace and compassion and mercy. What a picture. So Micah comes along and says, this is what God requires. Just like God, that, that you would love mercy. And in this book, in this prophet book of Micah, while he's saying there's this coming storm, and this is what it's going to look like, even in that, he, at the end, he closes out on a bright spot that there's hope and there's a promise. The sun will come out tomorrow, he says, not because you're so great, but because of who God is. So in Micah chapter 7, he ends the whole book, and he says, who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of it as his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever. God, who else would do that? Who would be so gracious? Who would be so merciful? And then he does this contrast. You do not stay angry forever, but look at this. But delight to show mercy. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm caught by that word delight. God, you find pleasure. You love it when you have the opportunity to show mercy. It's such a part of who you are. You just can't wait. You delight to show mercy. And then he goes on to talk about what God will do for them to prove how merciful he is. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. You'll hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I so love this verse. Micah didn't even know the depth to which he was talking about. He'd never even heard of Mariana's Trench off of the coast of Guam. He says he'll throw, he's going to stomp on our sins and throw them to the deepest part of the ocean, off the coast of Guam, the Mariana Trench. It goes like 1,500 miles. And in this one point, the Discovery Deep, at 36,000 feet deep, only two or three humans have ever even been down there. It's completely black. The water is about 34 degrees. And the pressure down there is eight tons per square inch. What that means is if you were down there unprotected, you would just, gone. That's all, folks. He says, I'll take your sins and I will put them down there. No one goes down there. No one's going to dig them up. I'm not going to bring them back up. Why? Because I am a merciful God. Our God is so merciful. Some of you remember 1981. Some of you don't. The year I graduated, I know you weren't there. But in that year, something came out. This movie, there's a picture from the movie. Some of you may remember Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's classic. If nothing else, it brought to the forefront Old Testament history for the common people. But the story was fiction, but the ark is not. The ark was something that God told Moses to make, to construct. And inside the ark was the Ten Commandments, the tablets, 
was a golden jar of manna that they got every morning and was Aaron's rod that had bloomed the, the, the almond uh, blossoms. And when they went into Jericho and they marched on Jericho, the Ark of the Covenant went first. When Moses would go into the, the tent of meeting, it was in the, the Ark of the Covenant is where God would meet him. And God had said, you will make no graven images of me. They didn't have a picture. They didn't have an idol. They didn't have a statue of God. The closest thing was this box and this area somehow was where the presence of God dwelt. And when they built the temple, this box was inside the Holy of Holies. And you couldn't just go check it out on a field trip. In fact, only one man, one day a year, could go into the Holy of Holies. The high priest would go in there on the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice and to sprinkle blood on behalf of the sins of the entire nation. And in this very frightening moment when he would go in there, he would sprinkle blood on this box in this area right here between the outstretched wings of the angelic beings. He would sprinkle blood right here. This was the dwelling place of God. This was referred to as the mercy seat. This is where our God of mercy dwells. You see how merciful our God is. So when Micah comes along, he said, he has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do just, act justly and to love mercy. They knew our God is a merciful God. It's reflected through our history, through our scriptures, through all that God is merciful. Like father, like daughter, like father, like son. Because this is who we serve. So the question I have is, do you love mercy? I mean, do you really love it? Don't answer it too quickly. In fact, don't answer it all. Hold on, we'll come back to that question. So it is December, and we talked about this last week. We're in a minor prophet, but we're leading up to Christmas. And if my mom were to watch this sermon online, and I didn't say something about the Christmas story, I'd hear about it from my mom. So for mom's sake, maybe we'll talk about some Christmas story. Hey, most of you are familiar with the Christmas story. There's a, there's a member in the, in the Christmas cast, and he's got a very important role, but a very small part, actually. In fact, he doesn't have any speaking lines in the whole pageant at all. But he's got an important role. And what you find is that he's also a very merciful individual. It's the mercy of Joseph. Now, if you look in the Bible, you don't find he doesn't get any speaking lines. And even in the pageant you grew up with, what was Joseph's role? Hold on to the rope to guide the donkey. And then at the very end when that silhouetted scene, to put his hand on the Virgin Mary while she looked at the baby. That's his role. That's it. He doesn't bring gold. He doesn't bring frankincense. doesn't bring myrrh. In fact, when the Magi show up, he's not even mentioned. He might not even be there for whatever reason. He's, but Joseph is engaged, betrothed to this woman that he loves. He wants to spend the rest of his life with. He cares about her. And then she tells him, She's pregnant, and he knows beyond a shadow of doubt it's not his kid. Now what's he to do? I mean, you can imagine his heart is broken, his mind is confused, he's disappointed, he's sad, he's angry, every emotion you could think of. And we read this about Joseph. Because Joseph, her husband, betrothed, engaged, was a righteous man. And we read that and we think, well, that's like a descriptor of him. It'd be like saying, because Joseph was a handsome man, or because Joseph was a hardworking man, or because Joseph was a wealthy man, or whatever it might have been. But Scott McKnight, in his book, The Jesus Creed, says this isn't just a descriptor. 
that this word righteous or this righteous man or the righteous one was actually a, it was a, a status. It was a, a category. It was what he refers to uh, as the tzaddik, the tzaddik, which were the righteous ones. And this was a, a group, of, a category, a, a, almost a, a, a class or status of people. And this is what, what would classify someone as the tzaddik, that they observed the Torah faithfully and completely and treated others with full respect and love. So here's Joseph who has this standing as this one who honors, values, and follows and obeys the Torah, but cares and respects and loves people. And now his fiance is pregnant, and the Torah is very clear about what should happen to her. If this was some uh, a case of a rape, then she would be fine, but the man who raped her should be killed, stoned. She says, no, I wasn't raped. If this was a, an, an adulterous, illicit affair, then both of them should be brought and they should be killed. And she says, that wasn't it either. And he says, well, who was it? And he said, there was no man involved. This is a God thing. Guys, don't ever believe that line. <laughs> How would Joseph believe that line? You can't, come on, seriously. And so he's torn with this struggle. I know what God's word says to do and to act justly is to follow God's law. And I love this woman, and it pains me, and I don't, I don't want to do this. And I wonder if in those moments when he's trying to figure out, what do I do? I wonder if he calls this verse to mind. Do justice, but love mercy. Love mercy. Because what he does, or what he plans to do, reflects justice and mercy. He was a righteous man, and he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. That's mercy. He had a mind to divorce her, the justice according to the Torah, quietly. I'll do the right thing, but do it in a very, very merciful way. Now, after that, the angel appears to him in a dream. Go on with the Christmas story. But what's amazing, while Joseph, really, you don't hear much about him, one more time when Jesus is at the temple, and then when he's 12, and then you never hear about him again. But this is what I believe. That at least until Jesus was 12, and we don't know beyond that, because Joseph never shows up during his public ministry. But at least until Jesus is 12, he was raised and brought up in a home where his pop, his stepfather, his dad, displayed justice and mercy lived doing justice and loving mercy. Probably ingrained in young Jesus at an early age, the scriptures and Micah would say, this is how we live, Jesus. We do justice and we love mercy. And maybe as he got a little older, they told the story and how Joseph would do justice and love mercy. And maybe as he got older, he began to hear some of the statements that were whispered under breath, some of the rumors about his parents, some of the rumors about himself. Maybe he experienced the lack of mercy from their community. But he had always heard, always seen, and always been taught from his parents. Do justly and love mercy. So it's no wonder when Jesus comes on the scene and he gives the Beatitudes, he says, how incredibly fortunate, how lucky, how happy, how blessed 
are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. To which someone say, okay, I'll be more merciful. No, 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 no. Love mercy. Not the obligatory I'm being merciful thing. Showing you mercy and you better recognize it. To love mercy. Do you love mercy? All right. I'll give you a little quiz. I'll give you some childhood statements that many of us said. They're very, very stupid. I think you're going to do well on this quiz. Very, very stupid statements. I'm going to say the first part, and I want you to finish it, okay? I know you are, but... Okay, go ahead and be proud of, of these things, okay? Um, it takes one, two. This one's a little more difficult. I'm rubber, you're glue. Yeah, whatever you say, bounce off me and sticks on you. All right. Then there's another one that was said in every category under the sun. Ice cream, Seahawks, art class. If ever you were to say, I love art, the response was, then why don't you? Yeah, which is great logic. Just marry everything you love. So we come along here, and we say, I love mercy. To which God says, why don't you marry it? Why don't you be so committed to mercy? Why don't you have mercy so integrated in your life that the two become one? Why don't you be so committed to mercy that you are faithful to it, that you cherish it, that you treasure it? Why don't you be so committed to mercy that it stays with you till death do you part? Why don't you marry it? Why don't you love mercy like your heavenly father does, who delights to show mercy, who exercises mercy? I think we do to a certain degree. I think we love mercy. I think I can speak for all of us. We love to receive mercy. I love that God is a merciful God. I know that I don't deserve it. I know that I fail. I know that I sin. I know that I blow it. I know what I, the punishment I deserve. I know the life I deserve. And I'm grateful for a merciful God. I love mercy. Love to receive it. Ephesians says this, but because of his great love for us, God who is, look at it, rich in mercy. It's our God. Rich in mercy. Made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to get it. It's just because God is so merciful. It's by grace you have been saved. Or in 1 Peter, where it says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy. He's rich in mercy. He delights in mercy. His great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love mercy. I think you do too. The bigger question is this. The one that's a little more difficult. Do we love to extend mercy? Do we love to show mercy? Do we love to exercise mercy when someone doesn't deserve it? When someone has done something wrong and they're deserving a punishment, do we delight when they're given mercy? That's a little more difficult. Oh, I like to be on the receiving end. But God says, this is what I require of you, not just receiving it, but in giving it as well. If anybody, if anybody should be merciful, it's those of us who have received the great mercy of our God. It's those of us who live in his mercies new every day. To be overwhelmed by that. To know that our Heavenly Father delights to show mercy, exercises mercy, 
and says, I require of you that you would love mercy. And so Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Wrestle with this question. Do I really love mercy? Not just receiving it. Do I really love mercy? See, here's the thing. All the justice piece, you can mandate that. You can force that. You can, you can make someone go do justice. You can make your kid go serve. You can, whatever, make them pick up trash. Loving mercy is a heart condition. And no one can force you to do that. That's between you and God. And that's a little more difficult. And God says, this is what I require of you. So one of the things you can do to grow in this area of loving mercy, because I think we love maybe not as much as we should, is to reflect. It's to reflect on how merciful God has been to us. To reflect on how patient, how gracious, how compassionate he's been for us. Reflect on his mercies that are new every day. As you reflect on that and recognize, I have been given so much mercy from my heavenly father. And why would I hold off giving mercy to others? So here's the next step for you. This Wednesday night, we will gather in this room for our refuge, and it, it's for this purpose, to reflect. We'll spend time worshiping. We're going to be going back to Micah 6, 8. We'll be reflecting on that. And then we'll be taking communion together. And what better place to reflect on the mercy of God that he has shown to us than at the communion table, the price that he paid that we could be forgiven. So I want to encourage you to be here and this week to wrestle with this question. Do I love mercy? God, how can I help me to love mercy more? Change my heart. So I've asked Ron to close us with a familiar Christmas song for a purpose. And the song is O Holy Night. And the last verse of that song talks about this whole thing of doing justice, justly, just, those lights through me, justly and loving mercy. Look at these lyrics. Truly he taught us to love one another. That's his mercy. His law is love. And his gospel, the good news is peace. Then he gets into the justice piece. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother. The, the equality. And in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. We've been shown so much mercy from our God. Let all within us praise his holy name. I invite you to stand as we sing this, and as we sing this, begin thinking, do I love mercy? And how can my heart grow in my love the way my Father has?